coming up on Pass the Secret Sauce. Are occasions where it is difficult, and sometimes the the the, the fastest solution is not going to be the best one because it requires you to rub against the value. And the moment you rub against the value, the value is mute. No, no one wants to wants to believe that that value actually exists anymore. So you've not just collapsed the one. But your fact that you've collapsed the one also then topples the rest of them. So I, fa- I found that values and, and staying the course with values and as a company is absolutely crucial. And there's lots of, lots of studies that show that companies that stay to their values have a higher valuation and have more success ultimately. And that's, you know, the, the numbers support. Not, not only should we all just want to run for that good, solid moral fabric, but, but the numbers support the, that theory as well. Welcome to the show. I'm Matt Shields. On Pass the Secret Sauce, we unscramble the life stories, skills, and secrets from the most wicked smart minds and interesting people to uncover their experience and recipes for success that will help you get an edge on your own life. My goal is to help you rein in on the chaos that life throws at us by learning from other high achievers. If you're new to the show, we have episodes with founders, CEOs, investors, and leaders. So if you like to learn and are motivated to improve your life, then kick back and listen to our guests pass their secret sauce. Up next on Pass the Secret Sauce, we have Randy Dewey, who is the founder of the Lyft Leadership Company. Randy has a really interesting background. I'm sure that we've all heard stories about the the leader, the executive that is quote unquote parachuted into a company to help save it. Randy was that person for a number of years and he's lived all around the or all around the world, been in many different segments, many different industries and he's found success in all of them. He's moved on now and he's written a book to, that basically outlines his learnings his understandings of you know that process how do you how do you take a company that may have fallen down and turn it around so so his book his courses all focus around that so in our episode you know we talk about a lot of the process a lot of the realizations that that he uh, deployed when he was in those different situations, but really uh, another very common thread that you know you've heard many times before on Pass the Secret Sauce is how critical, how important core values are, and and those guiding principles of the company. So again, we we touch on some of those those different elements, but uh, really really great episode. So if you're struggling, if you're if your company is struggling, if you know, maybe you're in a situation where you're wondering if you should bring in another executive maybe to help Randy and his and his courses now might just be that that person that you're looking for. So with that, I hope you enjoy today's episode of Pass the Secret Sauce. Well, that uh, I, I grew up in a, a small chemical uh, factory town. It was called Sarnia, Ontario. It's just across from Port Huron near Detroit. And, uh, it, you know, I came from a, a blue collar home and uh, my father was an electrician in the, and worked in uh, Dow Chemical in the, in the plants. And growing up, there was, a, there was always a lot of, uh, you know, kind of love and camaraderie support. Uh, I would say that, you know, though he had a pretty decent job, it wasn't the 
best location that I grew up in. So was, mm-hmm. I wouldn't say it was on the wrong side of the tracks, but you know, certainly it was a very rough background, really, mm-hmm. really rough sort of uh, environment. And so as a, as a young kid, it was always on my mind that I, you know, I wanted to do uh, great things, which I can tell you a little bit about where that came from, but, but I was quite determined, you know, to, to bust out. And, and I loved management, even though my dad was the a union rep <laughs> and I, I saw, I, I sort of saw myself in the, in leadership roles, even from a young age. Mm-hmm. Where do you think that came from? I mean, were, were you, were you exposed to any type of, you know, entrepreneurial leader, you know, seeing anyone, you know, sort of taking charge. I mean, was yeah. that, was there any kind of influence there? Yeah, absolutely. My, uh, my grandfather was a huge influence in my life. He was, uh, you know, born in Holland in, uh, in the, you know, in the, in the middle of the first world war and, mm-hmm. and then grew up in the, of course, had a family in the second, during the second world war and Holland was liberated by Canada uh, in those, in, at the end of the war. And that was the country he said he wanted to wanted to move to but you know he was a 40 year old guy and he was an entrepreneur he he uh, had his own business but he sold everything and bought three you know three tickets to uh to canada wow. and took his wife and uh, his youngest child and uh, sorry two so there'd be four tickets and uh, off they came over uh, over here and when i got here you know or when he got here you know there was such a determination to make it in a country they didn't know the language mm-hmm. uh, he struggled and it was difficult and it was not an easy easy road for him he was a hard-working person but when i came around i was kind of you know I've uh, the apple didn't fall that far from that tree and and uh, he he really took to me in the sense that I I had the same passion for for football he was a he was a big he played for the Dutch national team so he had a lot of uh, a lot of uh, sports in him and and so between him and I we became quite quite close for uh, mm-hmm. and uh, the thing that really struck out you know stuck out for me is that he he sacrificed everything for his family you know to yeah. come in country to create a platform and I felt this deep sense of responsibility that I had to actually do something with it you know that he you know this despite the fact that he did it so late in age he didn't have a lot of years to to make that that type of uh, you know a difference but uh, but he did in his own way he really invested and poured into his kids and wanted to make sure that his kids and his grandchildren had had that platform so I I really felt this responsibility that I had to do as much as I could in honor of his legacy and uh, uh, yeah, he unfortunately passed away with Alzheimer's, but mm. I had a lot of uh, great years there where he really shaped my uh, my my uh, my thinking and really drove me, you know, in into me a real you know, a hard work ethic and and drive to be the best I could be. Yeah, and and when he when he uh, came to the uh, immigrated to to Canada, did he immediately start his own companies? Was he or did he you know work for someone else or how did he how did he get into that well, the, you know, not knowing the language was really tough. So, you know, yeah. he was a, he he owned a paint sh- uh, shop and he was a, a painter by by trade, and and he continued to do that here. Like he he started uh, his own business and then he he worked in in all those chemical plants in that mm-hmm. that town that I grew up in. But he he always you know by the time that he got you know got really got his his language down and he got you know his backing, he was well into his fifties and nearing more nearing retirement than uh, than looking mm-hmm. for the next chapter. So that, that he, he really turned his attention towards, uh, towards his kids. 
Yeah, no, love that, love that. And and did you do the whole college thing, or what was what was your path? You know, kind yeah, of yeah. So you know, I uh, you know, not not having all the the, the resources that I, I had, I, I started in the local college and and uh, graduated with a technology degree, uh, technology diploma, I guess it would be. But you know, I went off to my first job, and uh, I can tell you the the first day I was walking home after you know after work, and I oddly came in contact with the president of the company walking in the same on the same street, and I remember very frank frankly, the, the president, you know, and I was mustering up every business question I could even imagine and uh, asking them all these questions. And at the end of the, of the walk, when we split ways, he just turned to me and said, you know, you can be anything you want to be. You just have to put your mind to it. Mm-hmm. And that really impacted me. I was actually still on a uh, work term. So I had still had to go back and finish up at that time. And, and uh, it, it, it just really uh, affected me because I thought, you know what, that, this guy is smarter than me, but it's only because of experience and education, but there's, there's no way I can't do what he has done and accomplished. And if I set my mind to it, so that, uh, you know, as soon as I was finished that college diploma, I went off to university and got a business degree and then ultimately an MBA. And, and uh, I kept, you know, working and scratching away and climbing my way up the, up the ladder of, uh, of, uh, of business until I hit the C-suite in, uh, in the, the mid nineties and, uh, and never looked back. It was, uh, it was always, uh, you know, just, uh, you know, just really blessed along the path for sure. Yeah, yeah. And and obviously, you know, you you had to have been, I guess, showcasing leadership qualities to be able to make your way into the C-suite. But would you say that there's anything that you realized early on, like your your you know ability to to you know be more of the leadership or be in the leadership role that sort of stood out that that you know maybe other people didn't didn't necessarily have? Is there anything that sort of yeah, comes to mind? Certainly the, the the confidence and belief in yourself that you can figure it out, that you can really do anything if you put your mind to it. And um, I'll give you a, a quick story of how I ended up in the C-suite. Uh, in the uh, in the mid-90s, I ended up in a company that was just about to file Chapter 11. Mm-hmm. And it was in the U.S., it was in Michigan. And I was, uh, you know, they, they were very upfront. They said, you know, we're in a real difficult position. We're going to have to file. But because, you know, we're offering this job, we want you to know the risks that are coming to the door. But for me, it was a great opportunity because I wanted out of uh, the environmental side, which is where, you know, my, uh, my, my college diploma was from. And I wanted into management. I wanted into leadership. I wanted to find my way. So I took the job because I was getting into HR mm-hmm. and uh, which for me was, you know, it was just kind of a, almost a sidestep, but in some respects, it was a great step because one, I took a job in an, in a category that I didn't have a lot of experience in, but it also was in a company that was willing to take a, a risk on me. And, and I had to take a risk on that them. Oddly, within the first, uh, you know, within the first couple of months, we got the contract ratified because uh, there was a negotiations with the union that I was responsible for. We got that done. And then the company filed uh, chapter 11. And, um, I, you know, I was there as part of the, you know, sort of the strategy team developing the human resources and the cuts and the changes and the implementation to help with all the dip financing that was coming in for the restructuring. And over that first six, seven week period after filing, most of the management team left. And I was the only guy standing around oh, wow. the board table. And this was, uh, you know, the guys from New York flew in and they were, you know, quite panicky because there was, you know, all the talent was gone around the table. And if we didn't get in and out of chapter 11 in 18 months, then the, uh, they, our number one customer is going to pull the contract, which basically was the end of the business. 
And uh, they came in and say, you know, Randy, if you can just keep the tires on and you know the plan, you were there to help with uh, creating it, just continue to execute it. While I continued to execute it, they replaced everybody around the table, but the president and I became the de facto battlefield president and uh, led the company through a, a full restructuring and emergence for chapter 11. So wow. talk about, you know, from, you know, uh, roll up your sleeves and thrown into the deep end. Uh, that was a real deep end moment, but I, I, I had that opportunity because I was willing to take the risk right at the beginning mm-hmm. and um, and figure it knowing that I could figure it out. I just, you know, I had to be resourceful. I wasn't an expert at everything. So I had needed to pull in the resources that I needed to make sure that I didn't blindly look at things and uh, without having the required expertise around me. And I, I filled in those gaps and uh, we were able to execute that plan and got in and out in uh, 16 months. And the company went on to be quite successful thereafter. I became okay. successful thereafter too, because that, that, uh, that private equity firm that owned the business liked what I did there. And um, for the next 15 years, I worked for them on a lot of their business issues that they had. They were, they're always in year six or seven with some investment in some yeah. company that needed, you know, just, you know, there's a lot of value that need to be unlocked. And so this began a very long journey for me where I, uh, I spent a lot of time helping them with their portfolio companies, get those companies cleaned up. So I, I moved all over North America, both sides of the border. I lived in the U.S. three, three times. And uh, came back and forth for them, uh, just helping with their businesses, get get uh, that business to get them to liquidity ultimately. But yeah. but and it required a lot of heavy lifting to get those things done. Yeah. What, what um, are there any commonalities in in the companies that he that they, I guess, invested in that you were sort of parachuted into to help solve different things? Were there were there any common things that a lot of the companies seem to be doing wrong or even things that they were seem to be doing right well you know oddly i've worked in nine different sectors over 30 years so the one thing though that was common was the the business is you know the principles of business transcend industry mm-hmm. yes of course there's always nuances and special things within each sector but but the the the, the sort of the theories and the principles of business and leadership uh, transcend all those industries so they would send me into more manufacturing based companies for sure that was uh, certainly a, the common thread but they were always in different types of sectors and in some cases different parts of the world so whether you know i worked in finland i worked in china and korea i worked in 32 different countries over that 30 year period uh, uh, for various periods of time not some not long so others long but yes there there are certainly is a, a method sometimes to that madness when you go into a company that's stagnant uh, i mean they're not always chapter 11 but sometimes they're just stagnant like you know the industry has changed the situation has changed in the business now how do you take the business that's been fairly successful, all of a sudden hit a flat point. And now how do you get the business back growing again? And so that for me, you know, became part of what, you know, the, the process and the methodology that, um, you know, I found myself, there was lots of common themes. That's what led to me writing the book when the unthinkable yeah. happens and, and launching it, because I wanted to take that. So that 30 years, those 10 turnarounds and, and, pro, and bring that process into a, a methodology that, uh, that made sense for others to read and be able to to follow so yes yeah there is a there there is a method there yeah that's that's fantastic and 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 the book would you say does it does it transcend industries as well is it more you know i guess a documentation of you know your processes how you can look at different situations i i guess i guess maybe the question is is you know explain the book and what it's about and what types of things it can help you you know, achieve or, or overcome if you're having certain issues, like what, what, what would it uh, help you realize? 
Sure. Well, you know, oftentimes, and 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 for me, uh, some some of the times that I went into, uh, you know, a situation where uh, on behalf of the owners, the CEO would remain in place, right? I would come alongside to help the CEO, and in those cases, there's other, and and as well in my own journey, there's times that you get to in in your leadership journey where you end up at a flat point of your own creation. Sometimes it's related to circumstance, family events, uh, sometimes business climate issues, and and kid issues. And, you know, like there's all kinds of things that can, you know, cause a leader's performance to just get off, get off, off uh, their normal stride. And so in the book, I I do talk about how to reach that, regain that peak performance and how to deal with the inside that moves to the outside that ultimately ends up in the, in the, in the four walls of the business and how to really improve that leadership performance and, uh, and, and, and work from the inside out. So there's lots to do in the book, lots to talk about in the book about leadership but also about how to take your leadership into the into the workplace in the sense of making sure the values the mission the vision the purpose that those things are aligned and and those things change over time like once you set them and it's not like you don't have to ever revisit it yeah. you know different seasons of time and and events for a company can actually change the purposes of a company and and so you have to revisit that you have to sit back and and reflect on you know where are we in this journey of this business and where does this business now need to go? And what are sometimes the, the realities or the situations that the business has now faced that cause the business to pivot? You know, I always think of Nokia, you know, they, they started off in the rubber tire business yeah. and 115 years later, they're doing electronics and yeah. they did everything, washing machines, I think. There was all kinds of things that they did, but they, they had this very nimble ability to start to pivot and change as the business and the seasons of time and the realities of their markets changed. And so we have to have that sort of Nikia-like mentality where, where every time we face a problem in a business. Hey, it's Matt. If you've been listening to my podcast for a while, you know that I've been involved in the multifamily real estate realm for a while. It's something that I truly, truly enjoy, and I wanted you, my listeners, to be the first to know about something new coming out. We're calling it the MultiWiser Deal Room. It's a community of individuals just like you who want to get wise about multifamily real estate investing developing, and even owning and managing your own complexes. You'll be able to network with people from all sections of the industry, from investors looking for deals, project managers looking for investors, real estate brokers, property management agencies, contractors, remodeling experts, finance gurus, you name it, we're going to have it in the network. I've been at this for a while, and I know it takes a community to make just one of these projects happen. And the MultiWiser Deal Room is my attempt to shorten your learning curve and get you plugged into leading experts fast who can help you close your own deals. We start off with a video glossary of over 150 commonly used terms to increase your understanding and help you get moving. Also included in the community are training videos to help you be successful, like how to put together a pitch deck, build a team, and so much more. We're going to have live interactive Zoom calls where you can ask your questions and learn from people who are actually out there in the industry doing it. For more information, go to multiwiser.com. That's sometimes the world telling us that the business has to change Mm -hmm. and that we need to change and that sometimes the old 
theories that we've always operated from or some of the stories that all the older sales guys would tell you about the way it was or the way it is. It's not always the way it's going to be. And mm -hmm. so in the book, I talk a lot about how to really reset that vision and the values of the company and then to take the company forward, how to, you know, my methodology is called lift, how to lead with passion, how to inspire your people, how to focus on making lasting change and how to transform obstacles into opportunities. So the lift methodology is really what is the, uh, the book is all about. So, so with that methodology, it sounds like it can help you, you know, identify opportunities that you may not have necessarily seen. So meaning, you know, that the company might be struggling in whatever industry it is. And that was, that was going to be one of my questions is like, how do you, how do you identify, you know, we're in this lane, Nokia, you know, we're making tires and then, you know, all of a sudden we're going to shift over here and we're going to make washing machines or phones or whatever it is. You know, those are completely different, you know, yes. different product lines, different verticals. You know, the way that I've always looked at it is, is like, let, let's, let's, let's look at some of the resources, some of the things that we do well, you know, some of our assets and maybe pivot, you know, using some of those assets into a different, a different category or whatever it is. Do you have any, any type of insights into, I guess, identifying number one, when you should, you know, mm -hmm. change to a different industry, but then also maybe identifying how or what industry to even change into? Yes. Yes. So, so part of the, the book will certainly go into that, helping you identify the markets that you need to go into. I have a course actually, that's on my website at randydewey.com. It, it's, it's a course called paint the future. And it's a, it, it's, it's a much deeper process than even the book goes into about how to really identify one, your core competencies and how to then assess how many steps away from your core, you're, you, you're willing, you're able and willing and capable of risking to make a move and a pivot into another industry. So Nokia fell into these other industries, not by chance, but sometimes it was by relationship. You know, they had a relationship with someone that, you know, needed tires and pulp and paper mm -hmm. while all of a sudden, you know, there was an acquisition opportunity that could help serve a common customer. Well, yes, it was a step to the side, but it was only one step away because the customer was the commonality and the yeah. contract that they won helped them to pivot into another industry, even though it looked like a vastly different industry, which it was, but, but it wasn't always necessarily that far away because they had one thing that was common. That was the, the competency with that customer. So sometimes it's customers, sometimes it's products. So sometimes your products can adapt in different spaces and in different industries that you never had, you know, ever thought of, you know, like uh, Molson Canadian, the beer company here never thought of the you know making masks and disinfectant you know for covid but yet they found a way to pivot and use their asset uh, base to actually take that asset and actually use it in a sector that they had never thought about before yeah. so there's there's moments in time where you, we have to sit back and really reflect and, and start painting that future figure out okay how, how far do we go? And, and are we ready for it? You know, because you can, you can pivot, but you can also risk the balance sheet by your pivot. So you don't yeah. want to do that either. So you have to be able to look at these markets and make very specific determinations of whether or not you're, you can, uh, you know, how much it's going to cost to make that risk? How much is that, that, that step across going to cost? And then how much are we going to risk? And then there's always that tangible cash risk, but there are also the intangible organizational risk, because if the organization is going to be moving in, 
a vastly, you know, it's like fish going upstream. Like the, mm-hmm. it's just not working with the business and, and it causes internal issues. Then that's another risk that, you know, has to be highlighted. So I try to walk through on the Paint the Future course and, and, and to some degree in the book, a, a, a very thorough process to help you understand and identify the market. Then how to one, not only understand where the growth opportunity is, but then how to scale it and not risk everything uh you know and it's not you don't want to throw your dice down the table on your company yeah. you've got to it's good to make it's good to make changes and good to make pivots in businesses but you have to do it on a, on a very calculated basis yeah yeah and and you mentioned i think a couple of times now uh, you know acquiring you know another company any insight onto or into you know is it best to try to start your own thing and again, I, I guess this is going to be a very, very, you know, case by case basis. But, you know, in your opinion, starting fresh, starting something new, you know, from scratch, we're entering into a different industry or acquiring a company who's already in that industry. Any thoughts on which direction would be, you know, perhaps best to go? Well, acquiring helps you jump down the field faster. There's no doubt. But if you're, if your idea, like if you're a technology person and you've come up with a great way to, you know, do sanitization of, uh, of factories or something in the midst of a, in an environment where that's really important, then you, you have a great idea, but you don't have, you don't have the customers, you don't have the market, you don't have the channel, you don't, and you have time that's a little bit not on your side because, you know, the need for that could change. So yes, then an acquisition to buy yourself into the customer channel, maybe what you need to get your commercialize your actual idea. Where in some other cases, maybe you're, you're going to be a disruptor of a certain industry. Well, you probably don't want to buy the, the, anything in that industry because you're mm-hmm. about to disrupt it and you're about to actually make some of those companies go away. So in that case, you probably want to be, you know, the venture, you know, go see the venture capitalists, get the angel investors and, and get your idea moving forward and and uh, keep everything under the hood as long as you can until uh you can get out there and actually you know make that impact so it really is situational based but but i'm a i'm a firm believer in the organic strategy and i'm also a firm believer in the inorganic strategy it really is dependent upon the direction that the uh the the core idea is coming from and what would actually help that core idea get commercialized because it's tough you know even if you have a great idea sometimes they don't get commercialized right and it costs a lot a lot more and takes a lot longer longer than most people think. So there is a risk to doing it the, the slow and steady way, but, um, but there is merit in it for sure. No doubt. Yeah. Yeah. And, and uh, you also mentioned, you know, the, the, the core values and, and, and that in your, in your experience, when you were brought into these other companies, you know, obviously you said you were working alongside with the CEO and that, and, you know, normally those types of people, they, they, they have a very, very strong personality, we'll say, you know, and, and were you, were you ever in a situation where you felt like, you know, the, the CEO felt maybe like he's being watched or threatened by, you know, your presence in that, in that process? I'm curious, I'm curious, you know, obviously building a company, growing a company is, a lot of times it revolves around the people that you, that you bring together and, and obviously a way to be able to bring those people together are by you know, establishing your core values and, and attracting some people with similar you know, thought process and all that by, by being you know, put into, placed into different situations, you know, obviously, you know, it's not necessarily your core values potentially that you're, you know, stepping into any thoughts on, I guess, you know, as a CEO, establishing your core values and then projecting that, those core values onto other people in a way that, that, you know, is 
conducive to you know the business moving forward rather than sort of you know strangling it you know and and it has to be this way or it has to be you know very very regimented and, and I know that was kind of a, like a long broad broad question but uh, does that does that kind of make sense yeah and I know I know where you're taking the question for sure and, and what's at the heart of your question and I've never I, I never found it hard to get to agreement on what the values ought to be. Mm-hmm. Where the problem was is in the application of the values, and that's where things start to to come apart. So in in cases where I came in to replace the CEO, which was less optimal, I loved it when I came in beside the CEO because mm-hmm. typically, you know, it's like any any situation where you got a, a player that's injured on the field, you know, like and it's the captain, like you don't just say okay, throw him out, and we're getting another player to put in there. It usually is more costly to the whole dynamic, right? Yeah. I liked when we you know come around and and even a, a CEO and you you. Support them. You throw resources, you help, you you enable, and you get the the CEO back on his feet. And he, whether whatever reason he's out of stride, let's help him get back in stride. And I always found that that was the cheaper, more effective, and faster way of actually getting the company repaired. So I liked those mandates, even though my values aren't ones that maybe will be written on the wall. I'm going to probably not likely have any problems with the values as they yeah. as the as the management team and the CEO come to decide what they are. It's in the application of the values and. That's where you you end up with you know with contention because you know the way I would apply a value versus the way you would apply a value is going you know sometimes going to be different you know the, there's always ways where we can argue in the gray ourselves out of the application and and sometimes it's harder to to stay on the high road when you go through t- uh, challenging ethical uh, dilemmas as a company and my my uh, you know I'm a bit black and white when it comes to that you know we've always got to err on the side of caution because there's a greater risk at play. The whole organization is going to be watching that application. And it might, you know, it it sometimes will cost you. It costs you a contract. It may cost you a, you know, a a lost opportunity of some sort. But the the return on uh, taking a stance for the ethics in a business pays back in dividends big time, you know, and, and I talk about that in the book uh, quite a bit. I give, you know, a number of stories of, of situations I faced where, you know, I had to turn back and say, okay, I, you know, I know you used to give that procurement manager these things, but we're not doing that anymore. You know, that's that, you know, the whole, our whole organization, you know, just rubs against us when we have to, you know, uh, buy that, you know, that item or pay for that uh, trip. I don't care if that was the way our competitors are doing it. And I don't care if that's the way the, you know, the procurement manager expects we're not going to do that because it rubs against our core values and we're not going to we're not going to operate against our values mm-hmm. and sometimes taking stances like that you know i talked about that story in the book where you know we lost 25 percent of our revenue but i won't steal the story but uh but we stood our ground and uh and we won in the end and uh, we won big time so there are occasions where it is difficult and sometimes the the the, the fastest solution is not going to be the best one because it requires you to rub against the value the moment you rub against the value, the value is mute. No, no one wants to wants to believe that that value actually exists anymore. So you've not just collapsed the one, but your fact that you've collapsed the one also then topples the rest of them. So I, fa- I found that values and, and staying the course with values and as a company is absolutely crucial. And there's lots of, lots of studies that show that companies that stay to their values have a higher valuation and have more success ultimately. And that's, you know, the, the numbers support, not, not only should we all just want to run for that good, solid moral fabric, but, but the numbers support the, that theory as well. 
Yeah, no, couldn't agree more. I mean, it, it basically gets everybody rowing in the same direction. You know, mm-hmm. everyone's working toward the same thing and everyone, you know, is, is, uh, you know, collaborating and understanding, you know, of, of, you know, how things are done. One thing that I, and actually I, I learned this from another podcast that I, that I was doing. Do you have any, any insights into, you know, when you're, when you're creating your core values, how do you go about, you know, establishing, you know, what those core values are. So I, I guess let me explain a little bit where, where I, I went with this. We had, we basically had a, a list of words, we'll say, which is you know, very, very common. And, you know, then there's a description of the words underneath it. What we found was that it was very difficult for people to remember them, you know, just, just a list of words. But w- as soon as we made them more action-based, you know, like, so, so our first core value is, is uh, significance. So we want everyone in our organization and all of our customers to feel significance in every interaction, right? So significance was, you know, the first core value, but, but we changed that to provide significance. uh, And then, you know, basically the same thing. So, so we're making it more action-based and then, you know, everyone is like, oh, you know, this is the first one. This is the third one. This is, you know, it, it sort of stuck a little bit better. And I'm just curious if you have any insights yeah. or any any thoughts on that yeah, approach. Absolutely, and I and I, I give a whole step by step process in my book of how to do it. But you know, I'll just I'll, I'll shortchange the some of that. In my view, the re, the leadership team has to really own it, and it has to be in words that are not fancy and not you know not nicely combed, but words that are, have meaning behind it. Mm-hmm. So I remember when I, I ran a, a a value session with my management team on a company I had taken over you know, they were so caught up with some of the past behaviors that they felt, you know, it was the same behaviors that I was mentioning earlier, where they were just caught up and say, look, you know, you know, you know, we, I don't want to cheat my way. I don't, I, I, we, we need to take the high road. And, and they were in, and all of the things were about integrity and values and, and, uh, and taking the high road. And, and as we were working through the session, the one guy said, you know, I don't want to cheat. You know, I, I, you know, winners never cheat. And as soon as you said that winners never cheat, man, it's stuck. The whole route, yeah, that's exactly it. Winners never cheat. And mm-hmm. I don't want to be a cheater. And in and it, it, when you think about winners never cheat, it's kind of a negative phrase, but but boy, did it resonate. And nobody forgot that. No one yeah. forgot that. And so that became the number one value of the company. And um, you know, everybody in the company jumped on that too, because they knew the history of the company. There was a lot of cheating going on. And so the, there was just a gravity. It just was really a hook that caused a lot of people to want to rally around. And so I think that that's the best values that you can write are the values that have the most meaning to everybody and, and really imbue a sense of passion, a sense of inspiration, that people really want to rally around and they hold each other accountable for it because ultimately that's what the values are for. You know, we got to, you know, iron sharpens iron. We got to be able to make sure that we're growing together. And when I'm doing something that, you know, to you looks like I'm in, in, in breach of that value, I want you to call me out. And so when, when, when that value has that kind of life, then, then you're going to, you're going to see good things come as a result of that. Yeah. And I, I love that. I love that analogy to it because I, I, we, we did the exact same thing and one of the other ones that that stands out in my mind, we we our old value was collaboration, right? So just just single word. We changed that to "I'm honored to push your broom." So because uh, you know so many people were, oh well, that's not my job. That's not my job. And we we're like, you know, there there there's no more of that. You know, if someone needs help, you're you know everybody needs to be willing to step in and help. So so yeah, I, I love I love you know that that story that you just told, like 
you know, when, when fire sort of erupts through the room and like you, you hit on a, a, a target or a hot spot and people are like, yeah, that's, that's exactly it. That, that's exactly the way we feel, you know? So really, really cool. I love, I love being in situations like that. So in your history of, you know, all these different companies and, and different experiences, are, are there any other commonalities that, that stand out that, that you feel maybe people were doing good or, or people were doing the right way? Or, or things that, you know, seem to be in the successful companies, you know, seem to be found, you know, one company after the other. Any, anything come to mind as far as, you know, the successful things that people were doing? Sure. You know, I got introduced to Vern Harnish's uh, work back in the late 90s and early 2000s and his Rockefeller Habits. And, yeah. you know, and that was in one of the companies that I went into. It was a young engineer that, you know, had the book and was looking at, you know, those successful habits. And I grabbed the copy of the book and I started reading it. And, I, you know, what really resonated for me was just the structure, right? The, the, the process that you would follow and, and having that methodology and the step-by-step methodology, you know, Vern kind of just you know, he targets a, you know, a couple of areas, but it's not necessarily a fulsome system. Mm-hmm. But what I, what I took away from that, and as we applied it, and then I went through a lot of the Six Sigma and the Black, you know, I got my master black belt and, and bringing those disciplines into my, uh, into, into my process really gave me, a, you know, a lot of, um, you know, a lot of, a lot of material, a lot of, a lot of things to help realize that, you know, all these pillars, the pillar of people, the pillar of operations and sales and finance in a company, you know, underlying the cash flow and the strategy underneath those as the, you know, call it the four pillars and the foundation of any business, there's methodologies to be able to improve on those pillars and solidify the foundation of a company. And that's what I created in the, the methodology. And I realized over time, after all those turnarounds that, you know, I, I, I'm repeating a lot of the approach, but it's just different inputs, right? Different factors, different situations. But, but as I started to refine my approach and uh, it, it really became, you know, it started really crystallizing. And I, and I want to draw back to Vern as being the sort of the founder of that thought in my mind that, you know, the, there's a method in here and, and you need to follow a process in a discipline to help you actually improve it. So I, I, I give him certainly lots of credit in my evolution here as a leader that uh, that bringing discipline and process to, to bear on these things. I certainly, you know, decided to, to expand that out to the fulsome elements of all the pillars of the business. So I'm, I'm quite you know, excited about uh, having completed that work and all the other stuff I've been developing in, in the former courses and the methodology here for sure at Lyft Leadership. Yeah, love it. Love it. So what, what's next for you? What, uh, what, what's on the, uh, the list of goals that you're looking to achieve with the book, with the courses? You know, what, uh, what's next for you? Well, certainly, you know, I'm 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 not the replacement guy anymore. I want to yeah. come alongside, and uh, I've made a real determination that, you know, I, I, when I look at the statistics and my experiences, you know, don't fire your CEO. There, you know, the cost of that 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 uh, that decision is is ma- is major for a company. It sets the organization back. You, 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 the loyalty and the allegiance within the organization, even though it may be a little frayed because the CEO has been having trouble, but the cost of that termination is is massive and a direct in an indirect manner. And, and there's a better way, you know, as I said earlier, you know, if the, if the, if the coach or the, the captain of the team is, you know, falls to a, you know, injury, do we just, you know, sweep them away and say, Hey, look at, thanks a lot and see you later. Or the next captain's coming through the door. No, we, we actually invest in that, that person to actually enable them. And so my, my whole mission has turned into the investment in the, in, in the CEOs and founders in the C-suite and helping the, them to be successful and then bringing the methodologies and the process 
processes that have worked for me over the years to the table and to help them through that to be able to you know get to success and get to triumph. Yeah, no, I love it. And and any specific industry or anything that you're focused on, or does it uh, does it not really matter? Well, like I said, I was in nine different sectors, and the only one that wasn't ha- didn't have a manufacturing base to it was banking. I, I ran a bank in. Uh, just before uh-huh. Lehman Brothers collapsed in, uh, in the notorious financial uh, crisis, which is actually what the title of the book's about, When the Unthinkable Happens, as when I ran that bank in the middle okay. of the financial crisis. But anyways, other than that, manufacturing was always a bit of a theme of, uh, of my background across those nine sectors. So that would certainly probably a gravity point for me is to, is to go to, you know, to helping companies that are making stuff as well. Yeah, no, I love it. Randy, this has been fantastic. If people want to learn more about you, your services, you know, the books, courses, what would be the best way to reach out and get in touch? randydewey.com. So I quite easy to find. And it was a unique enough name. I was able to grab the URL. So yeah, a couple of years or you know, eight years ago now, but yeah. So randydewey.com is the best way to get me. You can also follow me on LinkedIn and Twitter and Instagram and all those places. I'm quite easy to find nowadays. So, but yeah, and then you can certainly grab a copy of my book off Amazon, but yeah, absolutely. There's, those are probably the easiest ways to get me. Beautiful. I love it. Randy, thanks for the time. And uh, thanks for spreading a little bit of the, your secret sauce, turning around all these companies over the, over the years. So this has been fantastic. Thank you. Super. Thank you for having me today. Thanks for listening. And remember, pass the secret sauce.